You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin, good morning. Good morning. Yes, we are recording early in the morning because I'm so excited for our guest. Yes. But let's not jump ahead. Let's do a little review. Let's talk about the past week. It was my birthday. It was your birthday, and we have been in real life, in person together we have. for um, five of the last seven days, yeah. <laughs> which has been just lovely for me and yeah. totally um, like soul-fulfilling. My gas tank is filled. Your gas tank emptied very quickly because of yeah. the, the – uh, <laughs> Uh, um, uh, the the labor that comes for you with kind of being in real life with people, and at the same time we had a lovely time. Uh, we had with, a great with one time. another, and um, and we were able to be. So uh, for those of you that listen, you know that Robin and I are also a part of um, a project called the Activist Theology Project, and there are several of us that are a part of that work and that do that work in the world, and we were all able to be in the same space. Um, for several days together and actually kind of dig into the work and be with one another and and dream and imagine this um, world that we want to live in. And uh, it was just such a gift. It was so great to just work alongside each other and dream alongside each other. Um, And, and Dr. Robin had a birthday, which is a very big deal in their world. So yeah, I love birthdays. I love celebrating people's births, um, partially because I never thought I'd make it to 45. Um, My life has been very hard, and um, the struggle is real, and the fact that I made it to 40 um, was a surprise, and the fact that I made it five more years is another surprise. Right. Um, We had a great time together, and Friday night at Taylor Nashville – which is um, an Indian-inspired restaurant, um, you know, an immigrant who, you know, from from the central part of India, his family migrated here to Tennessee. He grew up in Tennessee as an immigrant brown man and learned to cook his favorite dishes with local ingredients. Yes. And so we got, basically, we got to be in his home. And that's how they framed it. And if anybody knows me well, then they know that I love being in people's homes, sharing meals, being at the table. And we had 12 or 13 or 14 lovely humans around the table. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that was that was a real highlight um and and i ended up seeing vivek at the butcher shop the following day uh while you were at the festival right um and so that was really nice we got to hug um it feels so strange but also familiar to hug people right and so i feel really grateful um for that yeah these um you know in here in the United States, our, our COVID numbers are rising. The Delta variant is really causing a significant amount of problems for all of us in, in the, the U.S. Um, and, and we are um, struggling to reinforce the need for the vaccination and the need for continued care and mask wearing and social distancing and um, kind of remembering that we are all in this together, that we are a, a, an integrated and connected people that are not siloed in in our yeah. community, yeah. That, that the actions of one ripple effect into affecting more than simply those around them. Yeah. And I think that today's episode will be um, a really beautiful extension to that conversation in that we are welcoming a guest that um, is joining us from truly the other side of the world, um, joining us from India and um, joining us in the evening, his time, um, as we, as we join him in the morning, our time, and we are yet still connected and a part of this fabric that, that Mm -hmm. weaves us all together as humans on this, on this earth. And so for those of you who are um, familiar with his work, um, you will be as excited as I am. I am a little bit like a kid right now um, in my belly, feeling excited about being able to have a conversation um, with this human. Um, We are welcoming today um, the incomparable um, Bio Akamolafe. Uh, He is a uh, facilitator. He is an author. He is a poet. He is a speaker. Um, he has a beautiful sense of um, integration and collaboration in in many many aspects of the work that he does. Um, he currently serves as the executive director for the Emergence Network and is in the process of partnering with Adrian Marie Brown on um, a couple of important projects that are that are happening. Um, we are excited to speak with him from uh, for a multitude of reasons. Um, but uh, before we uh, engage in this really robust conversation, um, I would like to say, Bayo, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. We are thrilled to have you and um, really, really glad that you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I will say that um, a friend of mine uh, turned me on to your work several months ago, and and I I found it. I just felt swallowed by your imagination for what is possible, and and I'm wondering 
if you can share with us and, and the listeners, wow, what, what, what prompted you to begin writing and, and imagining what's possible? Ah, so <laughs> beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, uh, that's a softball and a curveball at once. Uh, <laughs> I think it was loss, mm. a loss of my father. Uh, mm. I, I wouldn't go to great extent to paint a picture of the moments after he he died, quite young, and leaving us behind, and um, how it. I think a summary, an abstract, an abstract of that moment would be to say that my world collapsed, basically, mm. because he was not just the economic heart. He was my best friend. He was my role model. Um, he was everything I wanted to be like. And then he disappeared, so to speak. So I needed to make sense of the world that I was in. Um, I came from a, an, a deeply Christian family, was raised in the Pentecostal traditions. And this was the first ontological challenge to my belief system. It was right. Everything was ice cream and waffles up to the moment my father passed away. And then I needed to put my Christianity to work mm. or to challenge its primacy in my life. Um, and it meant deep experimentation with truth. It meant reclusivity. I wasn't a very friendly teenager. I didn't know parties or dating till I was about to get married. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I just re, I just secluded myself in a world of my own imagination. I actually created an imaginary friend who was a Palestinian uh, rabbi. Um, you know, that I wrote to my difficulties in my explorations. Mm. And that's where it all began, in a sense, even though I don't like to mark history in terms of originary points right. or in linearities. In a sense, that's where it began. And then following that, exploring with Yoruba healers, Babalaos, we call them, uh, right. like shamans. And they just, they just wounded me even further. They took away, uh, you know, a, a morsel of my flesh and uh, allowed me to play with a world that was animated, vital, alive, you know, open-ended. And I started to speak about this and people started to respond in a way that was surprising, amazing. <gasps> You're, this is poetic. And I'm like, no, this isn't poetic. This is just how we speak. This is just how we talk. We talk as if we're slain, as if we're in a trance. Um, but I'm really grateful, privileged that, you know, people are coming around and listening to the stories I have to share. So Anna said that you were, you know, several different things, an author, a speaker, a facilitator. But I, I know that you have some very specific training. Yes. And I'm wondering if you would share with us and our listeners um, who you are and how you came to be who you are and that you may not be tethered to the academy but no. but there but there are strands that that point back to that and i i just feel curious about that most definitely um well robin since you're a doctor as well you know the trauma <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, you know, the, I don't know if Anna is as well, but well, thank Not goodness, yet. thank goodness. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm I was trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, I was trained as that. I didn't train myself that way, if you know what I mean. Um, there was always this contraband curriculum that I cultivated for myself under the nose of the university and trained myself in theology, trained myself in mathematics, trained myself in philosophy, wanted to understand new ways of conducting research and all of that. But I was trained primarily as a clinical psychologist um, and um I want. I was set. I was setting out to be a neuroscientist, but we didn't quite have the facilities in my context for that. Um, and then I've been teaching for years. Basically, um, I left the university under somewhat controversial circumstances. The university back home in Nigeria. That is. Um, oh, I should also mention that I, my primary training is as a Yoruba person, and, and the Yoruba people are quite uh, popular um, for their traditions, their cosmologies going across the Atlantic during the Middle Passage and becoming, you know, those cultures that we call the Afro-diasporic cultures, the mm -hmm. religions, Candomblé, uh, Santeria, Rastafari, you know, anywhere most Africans are and the spiritualities that they congregate around is most always, is mostly Yoruba in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trained in that tradition, even though I wasn't trained in the cosmology of it. I was taught to demonize it, to pathologize it as something needing the intervention of the West to be true, to be real, to be efficacious in modernity. So we needed to be schooled. We needed to uh, denounce our own fates and traditions in order to be ready for the white man. So mm -hmm. um, uh, beyond the disciplinary um, uh, categories that I've spoken about, I've said that I was I did some teaching in university for almost a decade, and then left my um, host university in Nigeria in 2014 to just um, explore the world. I started out doing some work with leading the International Alliance for Localization, which is a project of local futures by Helena Norbuck Hodge. And then I decided to start this, the Emergence Network organization. Um, I'm still uh, in the, within the university in a sense. I still come in and out, I'm a professor um, uh, in uh, Pacifica uh, and Graduate Institute doing some teaching there. And I will be with my family in Vermont at Middlebury College next year, I think, um, as a professor of practice. Mm. It seems as if for both of you, the tentacles of academia are... Um, still have have, have oh, yes. holds on you in, <laughs> yes. in in a multitude of ways, um, even as you are kind of dissecting yourself away from a lot of the praxis that has come with yes. um, and the conditioning that has come with academia. Both of you still kind of have a um, a, a link back to that space. Um, 
and I think it's it's very similar uh, for me in in the same way that I feel about the church um, as mm. a Christian pastor and as someone who's deeply conditioned in that way, but also trying to disentangle <laughs> herself uh, from the problematic pieces of the institution. Yes. Um, and so I'm wondering, Bio, um, as you look at this, uh, both both your um, your work in academia, and you mentioned that you were, you know, conditioned um, in Christianity. Yes. Um, I'd love to kind of go back to where we started, which was kind of around this concept of imagination and possibility. Um, you have a capacity in your writing and in your speaking to provide to the listener and the reader um, a possibility for um, a world that doesn't yet exist, a possibility for how we can be, should we um, kind of remove all of the barriers that um, supremacy culture has, has kind of um, emboldened in us, whiteness has emboldened in us. Um, are those, is that capacity for imagining and, um, and, and the possibility of, of imagination undergirded by your academic and Christian and um, Yoruba life, or is it a departure from it? Are, are there is is it one or the other, or are they still also very deeply entwined with with each other? It's both. It's um, it, there are convergences and divergences. In a sense, I'm. Uh, my work is sustained in spite of the academic world. Um, and in a sense, I'm drawing deeply from some fugitive quarters of um, academia. Um, and you know, of course, that academia is not a monolithic enterprise, that there are seditious um, qualities um, to uh, Karen Barad speaking about transdisciplinary studies or interaction. And also noticing how speaking that way is still conditioned by large political architectural imperatives of the university and how that conditions us to, you know, form an economy of tautologies, right? We just keep on speaking it that way, but it doesn't burst out into doing the kind of things that it can right. do. Right. Right. So, right. so I, I, I'm in a sense, I left the university really uh, you know, con convinced that the only way I could really do beautiful, interesting work was outside of grades and PhDs and at the feet of grandmothers and goat herders. And, um, you, you know, because that's where I feel imagination, you know, fugitive imagination dwells, fugitive theologies, you know, possibilities that undercut the stability, the hegemonic stability of the familiar. Um, I, we need to turn to the edges. And so I needed to go to the edges, to the liminal edges mm -hmm. of things. So I, I'm drawing a lot from post-structuralist, you know, um, neo-materialist, feminist insights, um, indigenous studies. Um, but at the same time, I do not want to be swallowed by the language. 
right? Um, I want to I want to leave space for chirpings like the one that just infiltrated our conversation right now. I want to leave space for animist sounds to take mm. me to places of getting lost together mm. with the world. So there's poetry involved. There's my daughter and my son involved, and there are you know crazy questions um, and posthumanist you know experiments. Uh, I think these are the things that sustain my work today. Mm. So you spoke, you mentioned this uh, concept of, of feeling as if you are a fugitive um, and kind of knowing the, the spaces between or the departures that you have made from certain areas yes. um, of the, the worlds that, that have made up your being. Um, I also know that Dr. Robin is diving deep into this understanding of um, fugitivity and, and how that um, might um, might influence um, their work. Um, would the two of you um, kind of uh, go on that journey with one another about um, being fugitives in your work or or understanding how fugitivity is is um, a thread that's guiding the imagination that you're both that you're both uh, seeking? Sure. Yes. Robin, you want to go? <clears throat> well, I, similar to you, I left the academy, uh, left my faculty post in Berkeley, California, uh-huh. in um, right after the 2016 presidential election here in the United States. Hmm. And and I left on principle. I thought this is a violent, seditious experiment that I don't want to be a part of. Hmm. And I left on my own terms. And I and I and I re-entered the academy on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And I have a a long time um, faculty post at Duke University, right? Which is complicated with problems, you know, et cetera. Right. But my leaving put me in a very precarious place economically, mm-hmm. materially, and and I had to figure out. How do I, like, what are the tools that I'm going to use to support myself? Because I don't want to replicate the violence and the seditiousness that is the academy. And oh, I'm hearing the, the, the gecko. <laughs> That's, it's, it, it's a really great um, soundscape, right? Because right, right. There's, more, there's more to life than just this. Yes. And and yeah. we forget that sometimes. Yeah. But the 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 incident that made the most impact on me after my leaving and sort of launching my work as intellectual scholar, uh, public scholarship, intellectual activism, was an incident with the state police in Kentucky, where. I was called a terrorist. I had to raise my clothes to prove that I didn't have any weapons on me. Mm. And and in that moment, you know, I I try to move in between spaces without getting caught. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I am hyper visible to to the state police. Yes. To the police state. And and I've I, I've not got it reconciled, but I, I'm still trying to figure out 
how to how do I be in this liminal space as a fugitive? How do I how do I move in between places? How do I slip in and slip out? How do I be a lurker mm-hmm. without getting caught? Mm-hmm. Because because the way I speak, I speak in a certain register. Mm-hmm. So that gets me caught sometimes. Mm-hmm. I dress in a certain way, so that gets me caught sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I drive a hybrid car, that gets me caught sometimes. <laughs> and so I'm very curious about how do how do those of us who want to remain fugitive to these systems, how do we do that work? And I, I feel curious about how right. do you do it? Right. Well, it, this is a question of power, um, a question that invites you know us to examine our notions of power and presence and absence. I feel already, you know, right from the start, the question is, you know, is is one that refuses uh, a neat answer. Like right. Fugitivity is the refusal of completion. Right, right. It's the refusal of arrival. Um, I like to think of it as untold fugitivity. So I'm calibrating or tethering this concept of fugitivity to ontology mm-hmm. and how things become and how things emerge and how thing how we come to know things. So um, in a sense, it's the refusal of even recognition, right? That, that you know, like that fabled um, apocryphal. Chinese uh, series of sayings, which are also curses, that may you be seen, may you be seen by the emperor, or may you be seen by the king. Um, that is, in a sense, the uh, a sense of a sense of recognition that the fugitive uh, wants to move away from a sense of ownership or totalitarian control mm-hmm. in the plantation. Um, when I was Embarking on the things that I do right about now, I was met with the questions about power uh, and the real power of Yoruba gods and goddesses, right, the Orishas. And I asked myself a question, why is it, if they're really powerful, if they're real, or the way, um, what's her name, Frederick Apfel Marglin would say it, if they're eco-metaphysically real and true, um, why didn't they do something about the white slavers that came to take our people? If Eshu is powerful, if Ogun is powerful, if Obatala is powerful, why didn't they intervene? Um, and then I learned slowly and from different sources and elders that, you know, I was asking the question with a, through a prism of power that is already itself colonial, right? Mm-hmm. That power is dominance and control over another. Um, so whoever wins is more powerful than, right. but I was introduced gently into this notion of power as, you know, excess, the embarrassing excessiveness of things, uh, you know, as desire in the delusion sense that issue desired to travel with the slaves across the Atlantic. So he, he inserted, he lurked, you know, like you, Robin, he inserted yeah. himself upon the slave ship in, into the slave ships, and you know was part of the records, but the slavers could not see. So this notion of of the insurgency of the invisible is 
is what I'm working with as a model of fugitivity and power. And with how we're doing it today, well, you can speak about how we're unschooling our children. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is our primary activism, my wife and I. Um, we're both professors, but we understand the, the incarceration of higher education right. and how schools are not innocently uh, spaces of learning the way we, you know, we popularly articulate them, um, but mostly political um, uh, attempts to civilize and to create good citizens, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in underneath, you know, nice sounding phrases like global education <laughs> and all of that. Right. Um, so, so what we're doing is we're listening to our children. Mm. And there's, you know, there's always a threat that that might be criminalized under different governments here in India. But we're right. listening to our children and conducting experiments with them. It's not always easy. Um, but the idea of, de-schooling them, treating them as philosophers in their own right, yeah. generators of questions and inquiry, right? Ancestral becomings mm-hmm. is our way of, you know, our modest attempt to remain under the radar, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to get to another fold, if you will. Of course. Of, of fugitivity. You just mentioned something um listening to your children who 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 they say they are their emergence they're becoming mm-hmm. and this is going to get to some of our offline conversation around language and gender yes in the state where i come from texas I, I like to say Northern Mexico, the Republic of Texas, because the United <laughs> States took away half of Mexico. And of course. My, my family is, is from Mexico. In, in the state of Texas, as it stands, if, if a child declares a different gender than, what, than, than, than the assigned sex, their, their parents could be uh, criminalized and put into jail. They hmm. can be incarcerated. Hmm. And and I and I want to venture into hmm. how into sort of fugitivity relative to our to our own becoming. Yeah. How we express ourselves. I, I know that in our offline conversation, you greeted me with with the language of of your tribe or or of your community yes and and i and i wrote back explaining that oh i you know don't use female pronouns and whatnot and and then we had a series of correspondence about uh the you know language gender is a colonial construct Mm -hmm. language is a colonial construct Mm -hmm. and i am conscripted into that bullshit and so for me to be recognizable at, like I want to be recognized, then I've got to play in that conscription and and use language in ways that may reflect, may not reflect. Yeah. So I feel very curious. How, how do we build the third space of fugitivity relative to ourselves? Like if those of us who are who are 
we want to lean into emergence and becoming, and we want to opt out of the conscription, yeah. whether or not we can or not. Yeah. You, you know, using, using parents and children as an example. Yeah. What, what does that look like? Hmm. I, I would, I would circle back to the beautiful conversation we had, Robin, um, about, you know, pronouns. Um, but I think a beautiful rhizomatic entry point would be to speak about one experience I had in Berlin. After giving a keynote, um, I was uh, met with some people that facilitated this exercise for the people that I'd just spoken with. I'm not sure they understood mm -hmm. anything I said because they were mostly German speakers and I was blasting them with English academies. <laughs> right. So, um, but we had this session afterwards and uh, the facilitators invited people to think about what might be thought of as this third space, mm -hmm. um, a world that we long for. Right. And so they drew, it was a simple performance. Just they drew a line between a whiteboard um, and they asked people to um, populate the one on the left with things they didn't like about the world as it is now. Um, sexism, racism, police brutality stuff, you know, the things that you and I would fight against on the left. Right. And on the right, it was what they imagined. Um, the new world to look like this third space, if you will. And I, my body, I got uncomfortable. I got, I felt it in my bones. I, something wasn't sitting well. I've now been able to identify what was wrong. You know, what was uh, simmering in my bones. I now knew it as, you know, my training in despair. Um, mm. My train, my cultural training in despair. You see, my people have been trained to were colonized into hope, right? Right. They were colonized into thinking in terms of it'll all be better, it'll all be fine. You just need this policy. You just need some more activism. And then we notice in ways that I am now articulating as post-activism that the ways we understood our troubles and our challenges and our crisis events was the crisis. You know, it was the doubling down of an incarceration, uh, incarcerate, uh, incarcerating epistemology, something that right. imprisoned us even further in the colonial imperatives of our time. And so we learned to think about despair, not as something to pathologize, but as a way out, you <laughs> see, ironically. Just like the slaves um, took the master's uh, religion and spliced it with their own underground subaltern spiritualities and then right. created something that was new in Candomblé, for instance. Um, so uh, I, I, want, I went up and I wrote when I was invited to write my own beautiful world attribute. I went up and put a question mark on the line, right? I put a question mark on the line, basically problematizing and distressing uh, what I felt was another modern attempt to dualize the world into seminal, you know, binaries, where this is the old and this is the new, the absolutely new that gives, that is not indebted to things and that categorizes things in these ways. Right. Um, 
I feel that we are dealing with what I would call the myth of the pure archive. That whatever is it, by the myth of the pure archive, I mean that contemporary social justice movements um, are trying in the energy of the epistemology of this time to create new worlds, you know, new worlds that are in fact, you know, the problematic counterparts of the one that we're right. trying to leave behind. Right. Right. So we're, we're repeating the same, you know, under the language of novelty. Right. And we do not know that we're weighing over our heads to the things we're indebted to. So we imagine ourselves, for instance, as isolatable human agents. And all we need to do in our collectives is to narrate, you know, narratively articulate in intelligible fashion the world that we want to walk into. But right. that reduces everything to us again. It's anthropocentralizing. It right. reduces it privileges us as the masters of the game, and right. which is a deeply colonial construct. Again, I'm not even thinking of the colonial as bad. I refuse to moralize it. Because right, I think right, that would right. Be, right. It, like you and I, you and I will, uh, will probably be, are probably in colonial relationships with the non-human right now, even yeah. though we do not articulate it that way. Yeah. So, so I, I think that, you know, if we notice this myth of arrivals and pure archives, which has sometimes uh, cascaded or given birth to very, very um, violent language online and in the internet, very moralizing tropes, very, you know, call out culture, council culture, um, right. pixelations of bodies and embodiment, mm -hmm. I, I, I like to call it. I feel if we pay attention to that, we might notice that our work is not to create new worlds. Our work is to work with new disabilities, I like to call mm -hmm. it. Like, I think blackness, for instance, not the identitarian notion of blackness, not blackness as a result of black skins, but blackness in the way CLR James would think of blackness or black studies as the study of the anthropos, the man, right? And the search for cracks in the man, mm. right? No, disabilities in this giant white body, this white modernity, this white hegemony. We're studying, we're looking for openings, fissures, fault lines. So blackness for me is the search for disabilities. It's a trope of failure or generative incapacitation. It's the quest for new ways of being with each other that is not about defeating the other, not about creating something new than pure, but it's about working seditiously in a politics of imperceptibility, mm -hmm. sharing with each other and conducting inquiry with the non-human world around us, right? Treating our failures, those places that the modern has pathologized as treasures that we can share with each other. I feel that the fugitive often replicates the colonial, right? So right. the fugitive is not some pure trope because, you know, we have to think of even the fugitive can be an extension of the plantation, yeah. right? <laughs> it can, in a rhizomatic extension, it could be another tentacle where the colonial gains new foot, uh, uh, footing. Yeah. So it, the fugitive is a risk, is a risk and experiment in performing modest newness, right? But it is never the totalizing capture of newness like modernity would have us believe it is. So what I call for in my talks about making sanctuary, are uh, this is an invitation to slow down, to, 
to meet each other in our places of frailty and vulnerability, to actually stay with the trouble of our complicity with the systems we're trying to outdo. And then maybe something new might emerge as a result of our shape-shifting experiments. I, I love this. I, I hear I hear certain um, continental philosophers in yes. <laughs> in this thinking. Of course, I hear I hear Heidegger and the never arriving arrival. I hear Deleuze and the rhizomatic and the imperceptible. Yeah. yeah, I hear a little bit of Maurice Merleau-Ponty in some of, of a phenomenological orientation. Um, I also it, hear it, some it, of my own. Even though okay. I wouldn't fully, if, even though I wouldn't fully agree with Heidegger, yeah, or yeah exactly, exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. Never fully, just you right. Know, yes, I, 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 I'm a fugitive philosopher. I take what what serves me, you know. Yes, but I, but I also hear in this um, something similar to to what I have said, which is, and, and this is, and this is a scandal. What I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's scandalous. We need more more of those. When we center what is most marginalized, we are capitulating to the very problem that we have right now. So, for example, yes, here here in the U.S., the race breakdown is around black and white, and so yes. um, what white people need to do is is get out of the way, and then we just need to center black people. Yes. And and that makes people like me and other brown people invisible. And uh-huh. and we are we are recreating the same drama. Yes. The same psychodrama. Yes. That will serve to marginalize. Mm-hmm. And and you see, I can't say this in very many places because I, I will be called anti black, etc. <laughs> but that is not I mean, I I am pro human and what we need to figure out is how to divest from the bullshit mm-hmm. and invest in pro-human relating mm-hmm. and, and imagine the kind of world we want to inhabit, which means that we can't recreate the damn cycle that is marginalizing people. Mm-hmm. 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 I agree. I hear, I hear a little bit of that in, in what you're saying. A beautiful sister of mine. And Robin, I think I, we need to do a lot more work together. This is the beginning of our doing more work together and your more scandalous stuff. You know, you need, <laughs> this, this, we need more scandalous stuff. Yeah. I, I should say that, you know, I should have started out with saying that I, I think of myself as a trans-public intellectual. Not a public intellectual in the European or Eurocentric mode of yeah. Socrates speaking truth to power, but the trans public is not is not confused by truth. It is not attracted to truth. It's attracted to possibilities, impossibilities, yeah. and so the attention is not focused on uh, appealing to establishment. It's on exodus and exile yeah. and scandal and exile work together. Um, let, let me say let me say that um, Marisol de la Cadena, a, a sister of mine who's going to be on my course, upcoming course, she she once in a conversation with her some time ago, um, we came to we arrived at some very scandalous you know conclusions about what we called humanization, mm-hmm. that slaves 
were humanized. So, right? <laughs> which, is, which is a very shocking yeah. thing to say, because the ways we often think about humanization is as a benevolent gesture, right? Right. But what she was saying, um, she was pointing to the fact that, you know, um, this, what we call the human is a continuum of agencies and mm -hmm. white modernity has taken the human or appropriated the human so that the human now refers to the economic, epistemological, spiritual order mm -hmm. that we now know as modernity. This stabilizing colonial gesture right. that we know as, right. is a terraforming principle. The way we yep. articulate the planet and our bodies within the planet is white modernity. Yes, yep. it produces the world. It worlds the yep. world. So this human that is now at the heart of the Anthropocene, um, black bodies, for instance, were conscripted, enlisted into this trope. Right. right, as stilts <laughs> for white bodies, right. right? Stay at the end of the continuum, closer to the animal, in order for us to justify white progress, in order for right. us to justify white stability. We need you, the fugitive, the non-human, the yet-to-become-human, in the words of uh, Wehelie, to stay at that end of the continuum. Mm -hmm. So I think I problematize the human as yes. a site of acting. And I think of animist breakages or messianic mm -hmm. breakthroughs um, as, uh, as a way of bursting out of this plantation that reproduces, you know, hopes, the hopes right. of the human, the hopes right. for transcendence, the hopes for purity, all of that. Um, and so when you say this about, uh, marg uh, you know, centering marginalized bodies, yes, yes, I clapped my hands together. You know, I think my ancestors did along with me because I understand that, and we understand that um, uh, we need a different politics that is not tethered to inclusion versus exclusion. Exactly. Right. So I don't want to be included, uh, which is a form of violence in itself. I don't want right. to be included uh, to the Titanic at the end of time. <laughs> you know, I want to shape shift and become like water. Right. Uh, so, so centering marginalized bodies, and I forget the scholar. Um, who speaks about the dangers, you know, of centering the suffering subject and how that, you know, might appeal to our senses of morality, but, th but is, in its, is in itself a way of reinscribing uh, the violence of modernity, right? Exactly. So, so we, need a, we need different gestures here. Um, and I think of that as the, what Deleuze would call the politics of becoming woman, you know, the, which Rosie Braidotti uh, right. and uh, Grosh, Elizabeth Grosh would grapple with, but are coming to terms with, um, or what he would call also the politics of imperceptibility right. that does not center recognition as its mechanism of politics, but right. it, become, it centers becoming animal, right? And, and other modes of becoming selves, which is a, a long conversation. Yes. You're speaking my love language because I'm, <laughs> I'm a Delusian scholar. Um, yes. In, by trade. And, and, um, but I, but I paired Deleuze with Gloria Anzadua, who is yes, 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 a yes. Chicana queer feminist thinker. Yes. And I put those two thinkers together because Anzaldúa does the very thing that you're talking about around yes. shape-shifting and creating yeah. worlds. But Deleuze has this very sort of interesting way of deterritorializing yeah. philosophy 
um, that creates possibilities or creates inroads, right, yeah. for this kind of fugitive scholarship. So yeah. you're speaking my love language. Um, I agree we should be doing more scandalous thinking together. I think so. Um, to, to compost the colonial uh, world, um, and, I, and I would certainly love that. Um, I'm wondering if, if um, because I'm, I'm noticing our, our time, unfortunately, is coming to, to an end. Wow. Um, that was short. And, and I, I can't believe that we've done this much in such little time. But I'm wondering if, um, if you would share with us um, what are your next projects, what's coming on the horizon, what can we be on the lookout for, how can we participate, et cetera. Well, at this very moment, the specificity of this moment, my immediate next project is to find out ways to work with Anna and Robin and, 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 to, <laughs> and to draft you in or to be drafted into larger hyper bodies of fugitive assemblages to do crazy work together. Yeah. Right? So, so, so whoever is listening to this, just know that conspiracies are afoot. And we're and we're 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 thinking through theologies, crazy theologies of the fugitive right now, because God loves the fugitive. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, God loves the fugitive. God is a fugitive. God is God, a fugitive. God is a fugitive. Yes. God is a fugitive. Yes, panentheism and all of that. It all. Yep. I I love that. So, uh, but but you know, secondarily, I I'm um, I'm writing a book right now on post activism. And um, and crazy concepts that that might be shocking and scandalous, like yours, Robin, to contemporary um, anti-racist social justice movements. And I feel we're stuck, and we need a break. Yeah, we need a break. We need openings. So the the, the book would be most. I think it'll be out next year. Um, I'm doing some great work with my people in the Emergence Network, creating projects like Vunja which um, speaks to the African Anthropocene. I always like to, you know, in the voice of Matthew Omelsky, attach African to the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is not just a free-floating concept. It is tethered to the subsidization, the criminalization, the displacement, the suffering of black bodies, of brown bodies around the planet. So it is not just a you know, we are in trouble. The world is ending. It is that right. the world has ended multiple times before now. Yeah. And we have to notice that this is the Afro scene, the way I like to conceive it. Uh, what people might be interested in is joining my course, We Will Dance With Mountains, which is coming up in September. Not everyone is invited, I like to say. Um, only those who find themselves homeless, politically homeless. If you find, if you're coherent, if you're not disarticulated by the pandemic or by the issues of our times, you have your answers down pat, then maybe this isn't for you. But if you have more questions than convictions mm. um, and you're finding like we need, I need a different way of articulating this awkwardness or staying with the trouble of this awkwardness using Donna Haraway's phrase, then this might be for you. And then I invite you to join us um, Adrian Marie Brown, um, uh, uh, Escobar, Arturo Escobar, Marisol de la Cadena, and other scholars creating this assemblage together. Join us. Cool. 
Beautiful. Well, friends, we will include information to all of those amazing projects in the show notes. And so I encourage you to connect with Bio in in a multitude of ways. We will also share his um, social media handles um, should you want to stay um, in communication and, and, and stay abreast of what work is being done um, through those methods. Um, I can't thank both of you enough. It's been a beautiful thing for me to just kind of um, sit alongside the two of you as you've um, just kind of unfolded uh, pieces of yourselves and pieces of the work in ways that I think can help all of us. And um, Bio, thank you so much for being with us. I know that our listeners will gain a great deal out of this conversation. And I hope, hope, hope that we will find ourselves immersed in this work again and troubling the waters in ways that that um, continue to further the our understandings of um, fugitivity and and how we imagine the world um, to exist. I am grateful for you, Robin. Um, again, friends, thank you for being with us. Um, join us again next week. Follow us at Activist Theology on all of our social media platforms. Um, and be in touch with us. Do pay close attention to the Activist Theology Network. Um, we are going to be releasing um, over the next several months a really special um, way for all of us to be connected in digital spaces. And we would love for all of our listeners to be a part of that. So continue to pay attention to what Activist Theology is doing. And we will be sure to let you know how you can get involved in the work. Dr. Robin, until next week. Let's get free, y'all. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.